1: Hello everyone, welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Foster, a senior writer at Barron's. Thanks so much for joining us. We're coming up on the end of the year and that means some investors who own mutual funds and taxable accounts could find themselves with an unwelcome surprise in their year-end fund statement and that's a large capital gains distribution. And here to talk us through what this means for investors is certified financial planner, Mark Wilson. Mark is president of Mile Wealth Management and the keeper of the Doghouse List, an annual list of funds with estimated distributions in excess of 20% of net asset value. Welcome, Mark.
0: Well, thank you. Glad to be here.
1: It's great to have you so let's begin the show with a little bit of history why did you start the dog house list and how long has it been going
0: yeah um well I, I started um tracking capital gains information going back to my my internship days all the way 25 years ago so I've been tracking this information and finally decided you know what as an advisor i'm gathering this information and and it's and then every other advisor every other A person using funds is also gathering this information so decided to build a website to help share and help educate people on these capital gains distributions and um that was in 2014 and i wrote a blog post i by digging i found that there were these big distributions i really had no idea at the time even after tracking it for you know 15 years at the time I had no idea there were these really, really large distributions. And so I shared a, a blog post called the doghouse list. And everyone loves to read about the worst and <laughs> the big news in our industry and the most impactful things. And so we've been tracking it ever since, all the way back to 2014.
1: Wow. So coming up in a decade. So for listeners who may want to check out the doghouse list, what's that website, the URL?
0: Yeah. Cap Gain- so the website's called capgainsvalley.com And we have an article section that has the doghouse list and actually all the doghouse lists going back to 2014, if you want to dig through things.
1: So uh, coming up on 10 years that you've been maintaining this list, I'm wondering how 2023 compares with previous years.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we're actually spared. This is, this is a and since we've been tracking it, actually the lowest list of Dockhouse members going back all the way to 2014. So it's a, a list that's much smaller than it has been historically. And just to put that in context. So we track um, the doghouse list is um, those funds with more than a 20% dock uh, distribution, which is super painful. But we also track funds that have more than a 10% distribution, which which aren't they're painful but not quite as painful and if we just go back look back this year we've got 21 doghouse members but if we look back to last year which is a very average year we had 64 doghouse list members and if we go back to 2021 which was the the biggest year since we've been tracking again kind of giving you small average and high the 2021 list was over 157 funds on the doghouse list so more than five times what we're seeing this year.
1: Well that would have been a tough year. So if we're talking about sort of the 10 percenters and the 20 percenters and some I think there are some 30 percenters, let's just also get a sense of well what would be a normal capital gains distribution so that listeners understand what's out of the ordinary.
0: Yeah so so normal is super difficult to, to, to um, describe but we'll see you know, it's not unusual to see funds, you know, stripping two to 5%. So a 20%, you know, and above is really, those are the one percenters of, of um, painful distributions.
1: Well, So let's talk a little bit about uh, the twenty-one that are on the doghouse uh, list this year, and hopefully some that still have the distributions that are that are coming coming forward in the, the rest of December. Can you walk us through uh, maybe a handful of the funds that stand out this year and why they stand out?
0: Yeah, and one thing that's that's um, interesting this year is when we see these lists, they tend to run in in trends. So we'll see a list, you know, let's say from last year, or the previous year. And if you look down, you kind of see that the funds are alike. For example, it might be all large cap U.S. funds or a bulk of them as large cap U.S. funds. It could be a bulk that are growth funds, for example. And this year's list, if we go down the list there, I'm not seeing those trends. So we see large cap funds. We see um, real estate funds. We see value funds. Uh, on the list, um, what we don't see are international funds. We don't see any emerging markets funds. We're not seeing any bond funds, like a high yield bond fund or anything like that. So, um, so that's just one thing in general. And then the two kind of the two ones that stand out to me this year. One is a uh, uh, the Columbia, and I hate you know to pick on any one fund, but the Columbia Real Estate Fund has uh, you know 27% estimated distribution this year. Uh, real estate's had a rough time. So this is one of those salt in the wound type moments. If you're getting a big distribution and perhaps your fund is down for the year, that can be really hard. Um, we're seeing an S&P uh, index fund, a 500 index fund on the list, which is very unusual. That's uh, not something we see very often. And then we have a tax managed fund from JP Morgan on the list. That's like, the tax-aware equity fund that has a 20% distribution. And that fund's actually going to be fully liquidated by year-end. So, uh, in essence, 100% distribution, depending on how you, how you want to look at that.
1: Mm-hmm. So, it's also a correlation between funds that have um, these high uh, distribution rates, are also funds that have had big outflows this year.
0: That's right. So, the most likely candidates for Doghouse, especially the Doghouse list, are funds that have a long history, have had some success, and then see, um, th- this is the most common trend, not, in, not for every fund, and then I've seen a large outflow. And then that causes the managers to sell those positions, um, crystallize those gains, and then they're forced to give those gains out to the remaining shareholders. So that's something that's very common for doghouse list um, participants.
1: Okay. So before we carry on, I just want to give the audience a quick reminder. If you have questions for Mark, please submit them in the Q&A feature, and I'll be sure to leave a little bit of time at the end uh, for audience Q&A. So, you know, the the big question is, like, if you do find out that you have, um, whether it's a doghouse fund or another fund that does have a high distribution, and the big question is, well, what do you do? So can you just walk us through uh, uh, you know, how investors should handle this sort of uh, distribution?
0: Yeah, unfortunately, um, we have to do a little bit of math, uh, which is not the, the most fun thing. Just because your fund is on the doghouse doesn't mean it's necessarily something you need to run from. Um, one really important thing is, remember, these uh, uh, distributions only impact you If you own these funds in a taxable uh, account, if you hold this in your 401k, your IRA, your Roth IRA, distributions don't make any difference to you as a shareholder. So definitely a non-issue there, but if you own the fund in a uh, taxable account and you find out and what most people should do is look ahead and say, what are these funds expecting to send to me? And then you can, start to do the math. So if you see that the fund, you know, XYZ fund is going to distribute 20%, um, we would normally think, oh my gosh, I need to avoid that. But it's possible, there's really three possible situations, or two possible situations. One is that you could sell the fund ahead of time to avoid the distribution. And the other is, hold the fund and just eat and receive the distribution. And when you would make one decision or the other, that's the math part. And then you would look at what did I pay for the fund? What is the fund worth now? And is that gain that I'll realize by selling the fund bigger than the distribution that I would receive? So for example, if I bought a fund 10 years ago, I put uh, you know 5,000 in a fund, it's now worth 10,000. If I get a 20% distribution, that's a much smaller number than by selling the fund to avoid the distribution. But if I bought the fund last week and I'm going to get a 20% distribution, that's a, you know, I didn't make 20% before then I'd want to, uh, likely want to sell the fund in anticipation and avoid that distribution sell. And then maybe even rebuy soon after the distribution, as long as I'm avoiding those wash sale rules.
1: So, you know, this is, do you want to do some sort of homework Um, Do the mutual fund companies publish on their websites, what their expected distributions are? Is it sort of well in advance? And then the distributions tend to take place. I think it's late, is it late November through the end of the year? Uh, But do they publish ahead of that time, um, some information on their websites?
0: Yeah, we, we start to find these, these estimates um, by the first week of October, for the most part. And, but distributions themselves, They tend to to come in this um, about a third of them in the second half of November, about a third in the first half of December, and about a third in the last half of December. So we still have time to act on, um, you know, there's still plenty of distributions coming, and you can still maybe save yourself some taxes by doing a little bit of work. But to answer your question, all of the, you know, um, fund companies don't have to give this information out at all and they don't make it easy for shareholders to to find this information. Some do and some don't, but the largest fund companies publish this information in ahead of time enough where you can make decisions, Uh, but it's not on any set schedule. It's not on any specific page. Sometimes it's hard to find the information.
1: Well, let's stick with year-end strategies and some portfolio um, housekeeping since we are coming up towards the end of the year. What else uh, should investors be doing at this time of year?
0: Yeah, the, so the, in terms of the, you know, as advisor, um, the year-end list that I'm looking at for clients, um, we're, we've done the distribution planning where, you know, that's a, a year-end thing for sure. But the others that that are on the list are some gain loss planning so looking through and just saying hey I've, I've, i i might have sold some securities earlier this year i might uh, i might have received some capital gain distributions and um and i might have lost some money in a, a bad position that um, could offset some of those gains so uh, you know this this term loss harvesting makes it sound really great you know really nice but um, taking losses to help offset gains and so doing a little bit of math again is looking at what are my gains for the year what is my um, is that okay and um, should I be doing any uh, lost harvesting on the flip side if you are you know certain people should be doing gain harvesting and actually uh, going in and and um, locking in a position and selling it because they're they might be in a zero percent capital gains bracket or something like that. So there's some definite li- reviewing your gains and losses. Where do you want to be? And maybe doing some trades before year end. It's it's always a bummer to me to see someone that that you know might re- realize this in on January 15th that they could have done something last year and then it's too late to to act on any planning for last year. The um, so other and then other you know year end is always that time of year where we're looking at for for those over 72 aged uh, right now they're making sure they're doing their required minimum distributions and not scrambling to the very last minute to do those so there's a large penalty to if you don't do those and so making sure that those are taken care of by year end and then generally the year end is that time of year where people should be looking at their some rebalancing and in a year where You know, stocks are up, you know, uh, double digits and close to 20% for the U.S. large cap market. Bonds had a pretty rough year overall in comparison. Um, You could be overweight in in stocks and underweight in your bonds. And just it's a good time to do some rebalancing, reviewing and seeing if it makes sense to do some rebalancing.
1: So great. So that checklist, if I've got my notes scribbled down here, so one is you know, check for distributions, um, certainly in, in in taxable accounts. Um, check number two, of gain loss planning, depending on on what the kind of a year it has been, and then third is uh, rebalancing. Uh, that's sort of the three things on the on on, on the list uh, so far this year so speaking of rebalancing there's been a lot of discussion about the traditional 60/40 portfolio you know 60% bonds uh, 60% stocks 40% bonds that portfolio has been declared dead and then resuscitated so many times over the last couple of years, there's more discussion now that the 6040 could actually have a good sort of decade ahead. There was a Vanguard report out this morning, um, saying that, uh, that the case for the 6040 portfolio has strengthened. I'm wondering what your view is on the 6040 al- asset allocation for your clients.
0: Yeah, the 6040 looked dead long before 2022, and it looks well alive today, and so uh, we're always you know, predicting things are dead right after they had a rough time and not ahead of the rough time. So, um, when the 40 is, you know, when the 40 looks really good, the bond part looks really good. Um, I think the 60, 40 looks as good as it's been in, in a long time. Um, that being said, I, I'm a big fan of, of broadening it out beyond the 60, 40. And a lot of people, when they talk about the 60, the, the equity side, they're primarily talking about us, um, stocks instead of a global approach, and I, I'm a big believer on the global approach. But I, I certainly am not calling the 60 40 dead. Um, uh, everyone should look at their own mix, right? 60 40 is not appropriate for um, every person and their risk tolerance. But in terms of is the 60 40 going to do, you know, better than average or or the same as the long term averages going forward? I certainly think that you can make a case for that.
1: So I find it interesting when we were chatting ahead of this um, uh, call today. You know, you mentioned that you know, even though you've been tracking mutual funds, you know, certainly on the doghouse list since 2014. You rarely use active mutual funds uh, in your clients' portfolio. So on the equity side, you're a big believer. Uh, in ETFs for stocks and uh, index funds for stocks as well. So just walk us through your, kind of your thinking there, and what and um, I sort of guess listeners on the call could take away from from your history in uh, ETFs.
0: Yeah, the the funny thing that's the funny thing. I'm tracking all these you know doghouse participants, and they tend to be mutual funds, and yet I'm using ETFs in most client portfolios. So um, the the on the equity side, I, I'm a big believer in index positions and especially ETFs. And um, because it's very difficult to beat the stock market. And if we look at the studies, we're seeing, you know, over any 15-year period, you know, fewer than 15, 20% of of active managers can outperform. And they're very difficult to uh, predict which ones those are going to be 15 years ahead. And after taxes, again, talking about these distributions, um, ETFs don't have, for the most part, capital gains distributions. So we can then, and then after taxes, it's much harder for an active manager to outperform uh, an index fund that has, you know, virtually no capital gains distributions along the way. So those, that combination of it's hard to beat the market and, um, you know, going with a low cost index fund, I think is the, that's the the way that I've gone uh, in managing client portfolios.
1: So, what's interesting this year, I think there's a record number of ETFs that have launched this year. I was looking at some data a few days ago. I think we're close to about 500 ETFs that have launched in the US this year. And about 75% of those are active ETFs. So, it's it's a very interesting trend to see sort of uh, active management coming to a vehicle that we've sort of usually associate with passive. So, do you feel the same way about active ETFs um, as active mutual funds? uh i'm just wondering
0: (laughs) yeah the 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 gap gets the gap gets narrowed when we're talking about active etfs versus the, um, versus index funds because the ETF structure is just a, a more tax-efficient structure. So uh, an active mutual fund has that headwind of the tax efficiency issue, and where it, uh, the index the ETF doesn't. So the the it gets narrowed. Also, active ETFs tend to be a little low, lower expense ratio as well, um, so that that helps uh, with the gap. That being said, I still think that if we go back, you know, 20 years or 10 years into the future, I still think, um, expect that we're not going to see 90% of active fund, active ETFs beating the market. I still think we're going to have that same dynamic that we're seeing today
1: so let's tell a bit about the bond side of things because speaking of active ETFs this year we've seen what I would call sort of quote unquote sort of star managers in the bond field uh, coming into active ETFs we had you know Rick Rita at Blackrock and Dan Iverson at pimco launching active bond. ETFs so when it comes to the bond side of your clients portfolios are you also sort of an, an ETF believer or do you tend to go more active on mutual funds what's what will you do on, on the bond side
0: yeah so on on the bond side I'm actually I I um, a little bit of a hypocrite because i don't believe that bond indices are the way to go the same research that i'm quoting on the one side doesn't necessarily on the equity side doesn't really play through on the bond side and we are seeing managers that are that were able to see 15 years ago that are still you know beating the bond market over long periods of time so i'm a believer in active managers on the bond side and um so and then to if those managers were able to lower their expenses through an ETF structure, then uh, that's much better. The bond fund, you know, a, a bond structure in the ETF doesn't have the same advantages from a tax efficiency standpoint, because we're not looking, you know, bonds are about kicking out interest and so forth. It's not so we don't see large capital gain distributions. We're not buying the ETF structure for a bond for the tax efficiency. So that's, a, you know, um, making it less, uh, not as much of a, a shining star there.
1: Okay. Well, before we go to audience questions, I just have sort of one more general question. You know, when we were chatting before, you know, you you said that uh, people need to expect more from their advisors. And I'm wondering what you think are some red flags that our listeners should keep in mind when they are deciding whether to work with a particular advisor?
0: Yeah, well, I'm... I'm snobby on this end for sure, and I'm definitely biased <laughs> towards the, the the approach that I have uh, selected. But um, I do think that you know if you're paying paying money to someone to manage your assets, you really should be paying paying someone to do the full planning services as well. If they're only managing your assets for a certain you know one percent or more, I think you there are man, there are folks out there that will do full planning work for similar or lower fees, and that planning work is where we a good manager a good planner can add a lot of value by helping know your situation that much more so uh, red flags are if, if they're just just doing the money management and sending you a report every quarter and they're not really um understanding your life your situation your tax situation what's going on with your future plans i i think all of those things should play into appropriate money management, if I know you're going to buy a house in two years, I need to manage money differently. If I know, you know, these different things, if I know you're in a low tax bracket, because I've gathered your, your um, tax return, then I'll manage things differently. And so really, uh, people need to gather more information. And if your advisor's not gathering that information or communicating with you the same way, I think that that's a, a yellow flag for sure.
1: So speaking of gathering information, you know, one of the key, I guess, questions to ask, I would think, is uh, about whether your advisor is a fiduciary or not a fiduciary. Does this topic come up and do you think uh, investors know how crucial it is to identify a fiduciary versus a non-fiduciary?
0: I think it's getting the the. I think the F word is out there a little bit more than it's ever been, but the um, I still think it's a muddied area, and advisors on both sides are are, are advisors that are you know commission or fee based, so to speak, are muddying the issue. Uh, but really, I don't you know there's good advisors on both sides. I'm a huge fan of uh, fiduciary advisors and saying that i'm working in your best interest all the time and i don't know why people would want to work with someone that's not making that kind of commitment but the um but i know there's good advisors on you know doing good work on both sides
1: okay great so in our last few minutes we're going to sort of just flip over to a few questions from the audience Umar is asking for some advice on the best mutual funds to buy Uh, and I know there's a huge universe out there but perhaps you have some rules of thumb when looking at mutual funds with the caveat that earlier that you said that you're not a big fan of mutual funds on the stock side but I'm presuming that uh, when you look at uh, mutual funds you're evaluating fees amongst other things but what are some rules of thumb? for evaluating mutual funds
0: yeah the the key i mean if, if i'm looking to buy mutual funds in general uh fees are the the one thing that you can control right looking at fees and when morningstar does their studies and and they have a star rating service they find that star ratings are a looking back issue a lot of people buy based on star ratings um and that's better than than nothing but we But even their own research is showing that um, the fees have such a big impact. So if you're buying high-fee funds, it's very difficult for those to outperform over time. So I'd start there for sure. And again, um, if you can build a core of ETFs, Low-cost index fund ETFs. I think you can do a lot worse. Uh, there's, you know, that's a great starting point, and then layer in a couple active fund managers that you think are going to outperform over time. And uh, but that core of low-cost, um, tax-efficient products, I think, is really hard to beat.
1: Okay, great. Chris says, you know, I have two T Rowe Price mutual funds that I've owned for twenty plus years, and the capital gain distributions that I reinvest are becoming substantial. Do you know if it's possible to do a semi-in-kind transfer from a mutual fund to an ETF in order to reduce my taxable distributions?
0: So there are some. So one of the big trends has been in the space of um, opening a clone product that's an ETF of of a traditional mutual fund. So firms like DFA famously have done this where they've opened an ETF modeling the same. um, Vanguard's done the same thing. Um, I don't know if T. Rowe Price is doing that. And in those cases where like DFA has done that, and I, I don't know firsthand, but I believe there are ways to do an in-kind transfer from a uh, fund to an ETF, but only within the same, virtually the same item. So I, I um, but I don't know if that's the case, uh, certainly not the case to move from a T. Rowe Price to a A Vanguard ETF or something like that. But um, it's worth uh, reaching out to T. Rowe and and find out if that's an option.
1: So Shirley has a question in the context of the news this week of a potential um, buyout of Macy's. And she asks uh, if you know how mutual funds handle stocks of companies going private that may have unrealized losses.
0: Yeah. So the so mutual funds are the same as you and I in term. Of the, they do the accounting the same as we do. And um, so in a, if a, a company goes private within a mutual fund, um, it would be treated the same way that you and I would treat it, which typically means it's a for sale on that day. So if you. You could have a gain or a loss, but it's uh, basically, you get paid cash for that position and you realize the, the gains or losses that you might have at that point.
1: So again, a question here from Lee, we did cover this, um, but maybe you can just recap, how can you find out what the distribution is going to be for a mutual fund before December 31st? Do you have to phone the fund it- itself?
0: Yeah, these are what what I um, again. These aren't posted any. Um, you know, the where Vanguard posted is different than where American Funds posts is different than where J.P. Morgan posts the information. But going to the attack center on the website um, is is a pretty good starting point. Um, if you can't find the information, so we find all the information posted on various websites. The um, and it's just there available. But if you can't, then calling investor relations or emailing the investor relations team, and they'll be able to either direct you or send you the information. And again, um, right now, I, you know, we're at about ninety, you know, ninety percent of the funds that we track have we found distributions for. It's even a little higher than that.
1: Great. So another question in from Umar, if you could just repeat um, where to find the, the, the list of, of funds, um, you mentioned it earlier, and just to reiterate uh, that if you do own a mutual fund in your 401k or IRA, that it's not, it's a, like a non-taxable account, then these distributions don't affect you, correct?
0: Yeah, so um, if I'm understanding right, so the, the doghouse list is at com. Um, under the article section on the website. And um, yes, uh, fund distributions do not matter in your 401k, your IRA, your um, your Roth IRA accounts. They're, they're just
1: a non-event. Great. well, Mark, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for joining me. It's always a pleasure chatting with you.
0: Great to chat with you. Thank you.
1: And to our audience, thank you all for tuning in. We hope you can join us again tomorrow. Market Watch reporters Beth Pinsker will be joined by Jamila Suffrant, the author of the new book, Your Journey to Financial Freedom, for a conversation on why so many people hate their jobs and want to save enough to quit and control their own financial destinies. Thank you for your company today. Be well and have a wonderful day.
0: The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.